So yesterday we shared something about Shurabindo's vision and today we hope to share something about the practice. In principle, Shurabindo's yoga is a yoga of earth transformation. What he means by that is that it is not a yoga for an individual's escape from the cycles of birth and death and rebirth which has occupied the mind of the race for at least maybe a couple of thousand years. This is not the seeking with which man is born. Man's spirit is born to do mightier deeds. As we read yesterday in those magical lines, earth is the heroic spirit's battlefield. It is the arch mission where he forges his works. So, earth is, the whole formation of earth, Shubhinda reveals to us, is a special formation. Earth has been created basically for an evolutionary journey in matter. And behind this, implicit is the principle that it is divine who is hidden in matter. We know this, we have read this, we have heard about it, traditions speak about it. The only difference is we accept it as a belief, we never really live it. To live it means to handle matter very, very consciously, as if it's not just a dead matter. We make a distinction in biology between animate and inanimate. But in principle, in a sense, everything carries within it the divine. And from that comes that famous mantra of Sri that all life is yoga. All life is an effort to bring out its divine possibilities. And when we make that effort consciously, it becomes a conscious yoga. It is an unconscious yoga. All evolution is a means through which the divine who is hidden inside earth is trying to bring out some degree, some possibility. And if we can join to that evolutionary current consciously, Swami Vivekananda called yoga as a conscious evolution. What takes place through centuries and millenniums can be compressed in a few lifetimes, maybe a few months, a few years. That's the beauty of yoga. Otherwise, it takes long, long, long. So this um, evolutionary transformation, which is the destiny of earth, Shobindra speaks about that. And because this destiny is bequeathed to earth, that's why earth is riddled with complexities and problems and difficulties. Precisely because it has the power to resolve it. All the contraries. What are these contraries? In Savitri, in one place, Shobindra says, all contraries are aspects of God's face. If this one line we can practice, life would be beautiful. Very often, God has a wonderful sense of humor. So he puts contraries together. And, you know, they end up fighting with each other. Whereas actually, if we start looking at each of these contraries as an aspect of God's face. Within me, there is some kind of an aspect. Within someone else, there is another aspect. And it would be so beautiful to bring these two together and create a complementarity. They are not really oppositions. But they are meant to complete the design like small pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. This is the beauty of creation. This is the beauty of earth. It's a special formation for an evolutionary experiment. And of course, Shurabindo reveals that in this special formation, India has a role to play because all the difficulties that we can imagine are concentrated, as it were, in that small little piece of land. And they are concentrated because the solution that has to be found by the spiritual temperament 
is not the same solutions which are found everywhere else. It is a new, unique and a very radical solution, different kind of solution. And of all the, the concentration goes further and within a human being, we have a concentration of on one side something very beautiful and divine, all of us carry within us, regardless of whatever our externalities are. And all of us carry within us a little drop of light and a little river of darkness, if one may say so. And there is a natural tendency in us to see the darkness in others and to see only good in ourselves. But yoga teaches us that we have to learn to see both within us. Not with an attitude of self-depreciation, but with a calm outlook or inlook. And a gradual patient working on this darkness by increasing the light. This is the way that yoga, the principle of yoga works. That the more we increase the light, the more the darkness tends to gradually diminish. We don't have to fight with it constantly, not get into a kind of a meaningless conflict with it. But to increase the light and the more it increases, slowly this darkness tends to vanish. So this is the message of Sri a message of hope. Not just hope for a few, not just hope for some people sitting out there in Pondicherry Ashram, not just hope for some who say that, well, we are disciples of Sri but a hope for earth nature. What it means is that once a group of humanity changes, regardless of its external beliefs and non-beliefs, it doesn't really matter whether we believe this way or that way, what matters is what's going on in our depths and we are not aware. There are people externally who say, I don't believe in God. But deep inside they are seekers and there are those who go every day regularly to the temple and even meditate. But at the end of thousand years of meditation they have ten heads and that is called in Indian thought is Ravana. So it is what goes on deep inside. That's the most important thing. And the mother says we are unaware of that. We see only externalities. I was just uh, talking a while ago and I was reminded of a small little incident uh, you know, which, which is very interesting incident, um, how the mother saw everything with so much of uh, depth. In flowers she could see an aspiration. In different objects, she used to say that, you know, to handle objects um, carelessly is a sign of unconsciousness. She says that you have no business to use things if you cannot take care of them. Because, not because you are attached to them, but because there is a divine consciousness in it. What a beautiful and vast process of yoga. That when we cut vegetables in the kitchen, when we cook, when we eat, when we walk, everything can become a yoga if it is done with the right consciousness and the right attitude. Not simply with a kind of carelessness or just, uh, or just for self-aggrandizement. So on one side there was this, at the, on the other side she gave a very very broad path. Uh, someone was narrating to me a small incident that when he went to the mother, mother asked him for some something to give it to her, probably a tumbler or, or maybe a book, mother asked for that book and the disciple had a, some flowers in his right hand, so what he did was he transferred the flowers into the left hand, took the book with the right hand and gave it to mother. So mother asked him, why did you do this? He says, Mother, we are not supposed to give things with the left hand. Mother said, who told you? Mother, that's what we have learnt. said, no, 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 no. 
Now you keep it, you give it with the left hand. How does it matter? It's not a yoga where, it's not a path where you have to limit yourself. It's so many crammed up in so many rites, rituals, all kinds of belief systems. As we were seeing yesterday, it's much, much beyond simple belief systems which normally goes by the name of religions. Mother has said in fact that the age of religions is over. What is religion? It is satisfied with a superficial conversion. It's like a dress we wear. So when we go to a temple, we wear a certain dress. It's a dress code. So similarly, we wear religion like a dress. We fight for it. We like it to be appreciated. We are very happy when others appreciate it. But it makes no difference to the wearer of the robe. On the other hand, there is something still greater and deeper, spiritual conversion. Spiritual conversion is a conversion of the soul. It is a journey. The soul is not satisfied merely by believing that there is an entity called God. It wants to explore it. It wants to walk the way, to meet him, to embrace him, to fall at his feet, to annul itself. So many things, so many kinds of experiences. But each spiritual path, through its angle of approach, looks at one or the other aspect of the infinite. Some look upon him as an impersonal universality. Others as a personal or a supra-personal personality. Still others as the supreme who is beyond being and non-being. So there are so many angles of approaches and depending on the angle of approach we have some glimpse of the infinite. And we sit there which are halfway homes of the spirit. Or sometimes in the Supreme Personality itself we approach through this angle or that angle and then we quarrel between sects. Like in ancient times there used to be big quarrel between Shaivites and Vaishnavites. Within Shaivites also there were two groups and they would quarrel. Mine is greater, my Shiva is greater or your Shiva is greater. The same thing happening. My religion is greater or your religion is greater. My God is greater or your God is greater. Poor God, the gods don't quarrel, at least uh, the supreme beings, but we quarrel. But Shurabindu brings speaks of the supramental truth in which all these aspects of the divine are fused and united in an integral realization. So it's not enough that we realize the divine or experiencing him only as an impersonality from one angle, that's how we see him. Or it's not enough that we simply approach him through a personality as a devotee does but we have to see all the different aspects God as love, God as strength, God as justice, God as compassion, God as wisdom and so many, so many as, as the Indian thought says Ekam Satyam Vipra Vadanti there are 33 million aspects of God that's how there are 33 um, million gods maybe some are added because always you know there would be latest census we don't know Maybe the latest answer, there would be some new gods keep coming and some going, passing out of existence. But basically it means there are so many aspects. In the super mind, they are all fused together in a single oneness. Whereas, as that truth enters into the mental world, it gets fragmented like the rays of the sun. And therefore we catch on to one or the other side and then we quarrel. My side is greater and your side is greater. And that's what Shubindo yesterday we were reading that how he speaks of the infinite which is beyond any finite construction and so long as we are living in finite constructions 
which are okay, um, which are necessary perhaps as a scaffolding. Like initially people worship a little, uh, you know, idol in a temple or they do certain practices or they read a certain book, which is a holy book. And it's good to connect through that in the beginning. But if we believe that that's the end of things, then obviously we stay at a, in one of the halfway homes of the spirit. But when we begin to walk on the path with the freedom that God expects of us, then we really meet him and embrace him in his many, many sided splendor. So this in a nutshell is the path. Depending upon the um, part that gets illumined, we have in India prototypes of the spiritual quest. When the mind is illumined, we speak about the seer and the sage. When the heart is illumined, there is a sainthood. When the will is illumined, we have the heroic warrior or the yogin. And when the very body is illumined, not just one or two, but all these layers, then we have the future prototype, which Yogindra speaks of as the supramental creation, where not just the mind, not just the heart, not even just the will, but even the very body shall partake and share of the divine beatitude and bliss. This is a long journey and someone has to show the path. And the one who descends to show the path, who first reveals the mystery, or rather that mystery when it wears a human form and name to lead the march of mankind, that is in Indian thought the avatar. So this path has been revealed to us through the grace of Mother and Shurabindo. Mother and Shurabindo, as I said, is not a cult. The same mystery, the same supreme who wears the face of Krishna, the same supreme who wears the face of Rama, of Christ, of Buddha, comes now to show to humanity something which is new, something which is different, something which will take us one step further from mere religion and even from mere a spiritual sectarianism. So, we have this uh, very interesting description. As I said, we'll little bit talk about the, uh, the process today. And the process is not so much about an external thing. It's not about going to Pondicherry. It's very good because one connects at a deeper level. It's not about reading a holy book every day. It's good because it creates certain seeds in the mind, but it's not enough. It's not enough to just sit in meditation for some time, but if one is inclined, fine. It's not enough to do certain exercises, uh, breathing heavily, at the end of which at least we get rid of the asthma, but that's not enough. What is needed is deep inside an aspiration. An aspiration which burns like a fire. An aspiration which melts away all the layers of our being. An aspiration which marches forward, as the Vedic Rishi spoke of, the journey of the fire. Our very journey should become a journey of the fire within us. And the one who shows the way is the avatar. So we have, um, I, I just have taken out two passages. First, about this conversion, the total integral conversion, this possibility of man, which Shodhinda reveals in some very powerful passage on page 370. This we can read totally without context. Many of the right lines in Savitri are totally without context one can read it. So I am not going to say the context of this passage. But see it applies to everyone. It's the story of creation. Savitri is our story. It's not somebody else's story. It's the story of the soul struggling amidst ignorance. O oh, force compelled, fate driven, earth born race. What is our, in one line, Shurabindu summarizes it. 
Force compelled. Something compels us to move on, move on. Fate driven. We think this is how things will be and you know, next morning something else changes. Just now Pratyabhai was telling me about a bomb blast in Kenya, in Nairobi. Now, you know, mornings when people would have gone to the bazaar, to the market, they would have never imagined, they would have had their plans that we'll come back with certain things. But look how unpredictability is the only predictable thing about life. And we want to make everything predictable. But this unpredictability which throws us out of our comfort zones and there's a bomb blast and some, so many persons killed and etc, etc. Fate driven. So should we always remain driven by fate? When we so believe, then we have neat doctrines. For instance, doctrine of karma. Imagine all those people who died together were all sinners together. This is absurd. But we believe in such things. Or they were sinners. Therefore they died. As if those who bombed them are not sinners. Or maybe they will die in some other birth. But look at the absurdity of our belief system and we hold on to that. So Sherbinda says, O force compelled, fate driven, earth born race, Oh, petty adventurers in an infinite world. Petty adventurers. We travel across the oceans. We go to various places. We gather a lot of money. We build houses. At the end of it, what? As Omar Khayyam says in, in his famous Rubaiyat, Until thou too into the dust descend, dust unto dust and under dust to lie, sans wine, sans song, Sans singer, sans end. Is that the destiny? We don't even contemplate that at the end of all this striving, pursuit, at the end of it, maybe though <laughs> two meters below the soil or given to the pyre. But there is something else. This is not the destiny. This is simply an event. Unfortunately, we call fate as events on the way. Shurabindra has a whole, in Savitri, there is a whole book, the book of fate, where he speaks about what fate really is. So this is not fate. He reveals to us that fate is a transaction done. It is truth working out in ignorance. O king, thy fate is truth working out in ignorance. And the events that smite thy body and soul with joy and grief are not thy fate. So then what is fate? Fate is not the events that meet me on the road. My car gets punctured. I fall sick. Somebody dies. There is a bomb blast. Is that not fate? No. These are events on the way. So what is fate? Thy road, the goal thou choosest are thy fate. So what is fate? It's a mechanism or machinery which is propelling us towards that. And very often when there are intense moments, say of tragedy, it is actually a propulsion by the evolutionary energy to take a leap. So the whole meaning of fate begins to change. Very often what we call as tragedy is actually a grace. And what we call as God's grace is simply a remaining stuck in the mud. The mother says at one place, there is only one tragedy of life. It is to have died without discovering our soul. And she says, unfortunately, most human beings don't even regard it as a tragedy. It's not enough that we read about spiritual paths. We must realize it. We must live. If somebody wakes us up at night and says, who are you? So we should not say, I am Dr. So-and-so, Alok Pandey from Pondicherry. It doesn't matter. The Sphinx slays us. We should be able to say, 
as the Gita says, Mamay Vansham. I belong to the divine. Markande said that in the moment of death. And therefore he is one of the immortals. Draupadi says that in an hour of crisis and therefore she is saved. So this is the realization towards which we must move. And prisoners of a dwarf humanity, how long will you tread the circling tracks of mind around your little self and petty things? Circling tracks of mind. We build theories, systems, we read books, we intellectualize, philosophize, we write books and with each book we think, ah, I know. They are worth nothing. Million talks are worth nothing. But walking one inch on the path really makes a difference. So circling tracks of mind. And we think we know all about, you know, some, the most absurd thing is for the human mind to decide whether there is God or not. You see, it's a logical fallacy because if God can be understood by the mind, then it's something below the mind. So if it's something below the mind, then it's not worth achieving. It's a logical fallacy. The mother says the first thing on the path, if you have to walk the path, is to Remember and realize that the mind cannot understand spiritual things. The only way to understand spiritual things is by walking the path. And the more we walk, the more it becomes clear. Crystal clear, luminously clear, splendidly clear. There is a beautiful phrase in one of the Upanishads. Vidyante hridhranthi chidyanti sarvashanshya. When do the doubt cease? When the heart strings are rend asunder then all the doubt cease. They vanish. Spontaneously they vanish. So, how long will we remain prisoners of a dwarf humanity and move around our little self and petty things? Whole day. There's a nice thing I'd read about a page from the diary of God. We write diary to God. God also writes a diary. In the morning I went to this guy and waited by the side of his bed. And as he opened his eyes, I thought I'll wish him good morning, but he rushed into the bathroom. So before I could rush him, he shut the door. I waited that maybe he's in a bad mood, hangover. When he comes out, probably he will see. But he rushed to the mirror and was busy dressing him up. I thought maybe after he's dressed up, he, he's good, then maybe he will wish me at least good morning. But he turned, picked up his bag, rushed into the car and before I could enter, he had shut the door. I chased him, waited at his office. One moment, one moment maybe he could spare for me. But no. By the night he was tired. I could feel his tiredness. I wanted to take his head in my lap and soothe him and caress him. But he was busy thinking of everything else except my lap which was there for him. This is our everyday life around our little self and petty things. But we can live differently. Yesterday we heard the story of Udar. Every night when we go to sleep, we can sleep in her lap, the lap of the world mother, not in the lap of worries. Every day when we take a bath, when we dress up, when we go to office, the mother has captured it in one single mantra. Remember and offer such a simple thing. That before you do something, remember and offer. Before we drive, while we drive, when we have few minutes, when we speak, when we listen, when we have a cup of tea, anything. And really it has a magical effect. Many things in nature just drop off simply if we remember and offer. Many things we cannot do simply because we feel 
that the divine presence is with us. There is a nice story of Sri Ramakrishna's disciple, Girish. So Girish had every possible defect in his nature. And when he came to Sri Ramakrishna, he says, it's no use teaching me about spirituality because I have so many things and I'm not going to give them up. Okay, I feel drawn to you, I like you, but don't ask me to follow this path. I cannot sit and meditate. I drink, I gamble, I am a debauch, everyone knows it and you can't change me. He says, no, no, I am not asking you to drop these things. So what do I do? He says, when you drink, just think of me, remember me and then you, you drink. When you gamble, just think of me and then you gamble. So after a week he comes back, sir, you are very smart. How do I gamble after thinking of you? It's absurd. How can I drink? When I think of you and offer to you, what am I offering to you? This is not what I want to offer to you. And so the change begins to come step by step. If we begin to simply admit the divine in our life, because that's our destiny, but not for a changeless littleness where you meant, not for vain repetition where you went. We are born, we die, we are born, we die, we are born, we die. Like an ever recurring decimal, this is the history of the world. Someone wrote in three lines or three words. Those three words, history of the world, the shortest book ever written is history of the world. Men were born, they fought, they died. That's it. Because that's the history of the world. But that's not what is meant. There is something else. Out of the immortal's substance you were made. This body is what? This matter is born out of what? Out of a divine matter. Shubhinda speaks about that even God, when, he, when we have a vision, he has a naam and roop. So that roop is a substance. That substance is of a pure substance, luminous substance. The supramental substance. That substance can carry all the light without disintegrating. It changes depending on our faith. What is substance of the divine, uh, you know, the divine being is. That to the devotee of Krishna, the divine being will appear as Krishna. To a devotee of Christ, he would appear as Christ. To a believer in Hinduism, it will appear as Durga. To a Christian, she will appear as Mother Mary. What that substance is, luminous and plastic, which reads the will in the heart and changes itself. That's how the gods are. But our body is so rigid, so rigid. But we are made ultimately of that substance. This is degradation like coal and diamond. It's just a question of, you know, how deep and how long. That's it. Otherwise, essentially same, combination-wise. So this is how we are made of that substance. Out of the immortal substance where you were made, your actions can be swift revealing steps. Your life, a changeful mold for growing gods. The gods are hidden inside, as the Atri Upanishad says. They plunged into the darkness of creation and they are doing a work. Unfortunately, they are all sleeping deep inside. We need to wake them up. Rather, they are busy waking up us, but we are asleep. You know, every morning in almost, uh, I, I don't know about, uh, in Indian household, this is a common scene that children get up late. And when they get up late, the parents are very, very worried. Get up, it's time, get up, it's time. 6.30, 7 o'clock, 7.30. Parents are getting very anxious. Sometimes when I watch this scene, I reflect, that's how the divine must be trying to wake us up. 
Get up. You are 40. No, no, another 10 years. Wake up. You are 50. Sir, I am at the prime of life. Can I retire and wake up? Okay, you have retired. Now wake up. Sir, my grandchild's marriage. Please, allow me. Little more time. Grandchild's marriage is over. Sir, just he's, you know, his wife is going to deliver a baby. After that, I'll wake up. So, at 80, God says, okay, you better sleep well. Next life, I'll wake you up. You sleep. I think this life, you better sleep. So, here he's saying that our life can be a chainful mold for growing gods. A seer, a strong creator is within. The immaculate grandeur broods upon your days. Almighty powers are shut in nature's cells. This one line is a revealer of mysteries beyond mysteries. Almighty powers are shut in nature's cells. It's a new biology, a new medicine if you like. We have some doctors here and myself belong to that field. And I just wonder that what was the revolution that changed the whole atomic physics in 1900 Lord Kelvin declared we know all about physics we can explain everything except for two things and one of them was the drifting of the stars and he was sure that he knows everything after six months Max Planck with the photoelectric effect and a little later Einstein with the whole theory of quantum physics changed the entire phase of physics why? Because they discovered that within the atom there are much greater powers than we can imagine. The whole solid Newtonian world collapsed because what was discovered was that within the atom sleeps an omniscient power or an omnipotent power. The omniscience we have not yet discovered. When will that revolution come in biology when we would say that almighty powers are shut in nature's cells and if we can wake it up we can change the entire face of medicine. So much we are dependent right now upon medication, intervention and everything. But there is another way, a new way of being. The mother says that, that the new race, one of the qualities will be, it will be free of wear and tear, free of illness. Because it will spontaneously be immune, spontaneous immunity. It doesn't matter where you go because there is a possibility inside which will emerge and tackle and take care. So it's not just science fiction. This transient earthly being, if he wills, can fit his acts to a transcendent scheme. Our scheme is a narrow agenda given to us at birth by our parents, by society, by teachers. Grow up, do well in your career, get married, have children, build a house, own a couple of Mercedes Benz and that's it. But this is another agenda, transcendent scheme. And if you could fit into that, then the whole life begins to change. So, someone has to show us the way. Savitri is born to lead, to deliver. Shubindo reminds us in the beginning that the average human figure is drawn out by time to move one pawn on a big chessboard. That's how the human figure drawn by time. And who is playing chess? Gods and the titans. Or if we want to get rid of all dualities, the Purushaya and Prakriti. There is very beautifully we will see in, you know, now that serial is coming, Devonke Dev Mahadev. And it's from the Shiva Puran. And in Shiva Puran, Shiva and Parvati are playing dice. So one wonders, 
just like any other human being. But actually it's not so. It's very very profound. Shiva knows all the three times. Parvati chooses that I will not know the three times. I can know it but I won't know it. Because if I also know it, there will be no fun in the play. I will choose to do only at that moment whatever is needed. Like Prakriti. So on one side is soul, Purusha. Another side is Prakriti. Between them they are playing the game of dice. So Prakriti plays, Purusha plays. And in the bargain, who is caught? That little self which we call as I. Actually, it is not an I but a formation. But that moves one little pawn, moved on the chessboard. Between them they play this game. But Savitri is a divine descent. She doesn't come to for that. She is born to deliver. Shurabindu describes to lead, to deliver was her glorious part. She is the divine becoming human, unlike the human becoming the divine. So she is divine who descends conscious of her divinity. But by the very fact that she assumes a human mask, she assumes all the limitations of humanity. How much ever we may be very good with our sight, if you wear a very thick glass, obviously we are not able to see. So she descends into humanity. She is conscious of the divinity, but that divinity is now covered by the human frame. And now slowly that has to express itself by constantly changing this frame. So once she can work it out in one body or a few bodies, it can work out in others. Like any you know, production, we know that first it is experimented in a small little space. And once it is experimented, the experiment can be generalized. So Shurabindo Ashram was the first seed plot where this grand experiment started. Then, of course, we know Auroville and now it's all over the world. It doesn't matter whether we belong to a group or not belong to a group. Just by the very fact that one is open to a new consciousness, this experiment is going on. But that's how it, Shobindo said, this ashram is a laboratory. He didn't say that it is an ashram where sannyasis leave world, they wear Geruvavastra and they are given a new name and they live. No, it is a laboratory where human consciousness has to be eventually moved by the divine consciousness and the whole spiritual evolution has to be worked out as a first prototype. And uh, Savitri comes, here we have the divine mother who comes to show the way. And what a way! Here of course we will read these lines. Uh, What activity she did not touch, whether it be Uh, the field of health, whether it be art, painting, sports. She would play tennis and that would be also part of the yoga. Music, flowers, food, everything was turned into a yoga. A means to unite. What a wide path. Everything could turn into yoga. So here we have those lines about the avatar descending into humanity and showing the way. Because that is the path one has to take. Page 488 For man thou seekest not for thyself alone. Savitri hears this voice. Imagine a situation where Rama is faced with Ravana. His wife has been abducted. He could have said, well, I think uh, it's an indication that I must become a renunciate sannyasin. There is no wife, 
there is no very abstractly and he could have become a sannyasi he was anyways in the forest but rama chooses to fight because if rama takes to sannyas it means that over the years decades centuries and millenniums every time an asura creates a rampage over the world men will follow the example of rama and say i should become a renunciate and the earth will gradually sink into perdition that's why krishna says to arjuna i have nothing that i need i don't need to fight i am on both sides and yet i must fight i must put myself on this side because the evolutionary path will be open during the second world war shobindor consciously deliberately willfully put himself on the side of the elites and he said that not that they are all saints but if they win the path of evolution would remain open whereas if hitler and his forces win it would mean that earth will be plunged into a darkness perhaps for 10000 years a darkness more dense than it has ever known that time nobody knew about you know there was no movie like schindler's list and nobody knew because hitler had a wonderful propaganda machinery so much so that he used call journalist and you know there's famous movie the pianist and uh, some other movies have been made on this theme and he would make them see the facade where you know some of those in camps would be actually playing piano and they would be looked after well and right in the backyard were those gas chambers which nobody was allowed to go but shurvindu could see and foresee so rama has to set an example krishna has to set an example of the path of works so he has to be working and so also we see the mother and shurbindo they have to show the path they are the forerunners only if god assumes the human mind and puts on mortal ignorance for his cloak and makes himself the dwarf with triple stride can he help man to grow into the god we know the dwarf with triple stride is the story of vamana and the dwarf is the psychic being within us and it is such so little kathopanishad says no bigger than the thumb of man in savitri also there are lines to that effect because she knows the toil of mind and body and life she she is the divine mother she puts forth a small portion of herself a being no bigger than the thumb of man to face the pang and to forget the bliss because that's the work it has come to do so this is how she has to show the path can he help men can he help man to grow into the god as man disguises the cosmic greatness works and finds the mystic inaccessible gate and opens the immortal's golden door man human follows in god's human steps so very often when people raise this question how come christ was divine and could not save himself the beauty is if christ would have run away and saved himself he would not be divine they are not able to see this precisely because he chose to do something which was so extraordinary which was really like a sacrifice of love into matter that he would be divine otherwise he won't qualify we, we remember this whole story of socrates socrates is in the prison and he has he has to take hemlock and one night before those days cretos one of his disciple has actually bribed everyone and they bribed everyone and he comes he cretos belong to a you know good family 
rich family. Need not necessarily be good, but he was a good disciple. So he comes and tells uh, Socrates, Master, I have made everything ready and we can escape. Nobody will say a word. So Socrates has the habit of consulting his inner voice. In one of the previous lives, it is said that Shirobindu was Socrates. Socrates pauses for a while, then he says, No, I am not going to go out. And he chooses to drink the hemlock rather than the practical wisdom of escaping from the prison. Now, much later, of course, we have read about Socrates' famous last speech where he ends up with uh, his sense of uh, humor and a touch of irony. He says, well, gentlemen, you live here and I go to hates, but who knows whose fate is better. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, he had a wonderful sense of humor which comes out even in the last days. Now, Socrates would not be Socrates if he chose like anyone else to run away. So how these divine beings work to show the path? Accepting his darkness, thou must bring to him light. Accepting his sorrow, thou must bring to him bliss. In matter's body, find thy heaven-born soul. So the first step of this yoga is to find the psychic being within. Without that, actually the yoga has not begun. Yoga is not about having supernormal experiences. They are good, they are fine. There are many ranges of consciousness beyond the mind. Shobindu speaks about it. There are subliminal parts where we can enter in meditation, in trance or otherwise sometimes spontaneously we can slip into those realms and we can have very unusual experiences. And Very often people think that this is yoga. But yoga is not about that. Yoga is something much, much deeper. The first step of yoga is to find that secret cave of immortality. Amarnath as is symbolically called in India. It is that cave in which the immortal one dwells, wearing a mortal form and name. So the first step is to go deep inside and find that. And the attitude for finding that is beautifully described here. Earth must transform herself and equal heaven. It's just one page before. Or heaven descend into earth's mortal state. But for such vast spiritual change to be out of the mystic cavern in man's heart, the heavenly psyche must put off her veil and step into common nature's crowded rooms. Heavenly psyche. There is within us a little child of bliss, a little drop, a drop of a love which labors in the depths. It's covered with much darkness. It must step out into common nature's crowded rooms. It must begin to govern our life and speech and thought and act. And stand uncovered in that nature's front. It is right now covered. What is the covering? Very often, of course, mystics try to put it mystically, making it much worse. What is that covering? It is made of what? It is made of all our preferences, desires, egoistic strivings, attachments. That's the covering. And every effort to remove it is to get closer to the soul and to allow it to step out. And rule his thoughts and fill the body and life. So now that state which is described in three lines or four lines of Savitri should be our state. It's not about simply sitting in meditation. 
that part is also beautifully described that his whole body becomes like an incarnate prayer and hope it's not just that you know few moments when he's sitting with this mudra and closing the eyes obedient to a high command see shat time life and death were passing incidents obstructing with their transient view her sight many things will happen things which we will say good things which we will say bad both are equally ignorant assessments and instead of getting too much lost into it that oh something good happened to me and then analyzing it oh god is so nice merciful kind or something bad happened to me how could he do it there are two sides of the same coin how could he make me fail how could he make me sick as if i am somebody very special already just because i have taken the name of god a few times the mother and shubhendra say at this point of time it's very very um, it's not possible to give an absolute protection to just about anybody and everybody some people yes arjuna is specially marked for instance in the mahabharata to have that special protection so much so that when the whole war is over krishna tells arjuna that you get down he says sir it's against the norms of the you know of the present generation you have to get down the sarathi must get down he says i know i have always broken rules i am telling you get down he says sir i can't do it he says always you are a rule bound human being he pushes him and when arjuna gets down shri krishna jumps as he jumps the the, the rath goes into flames then arjuna asks what is this how did this happen so he says well long back it would have gone into flames with all those mantra bidh arrows which karna and drona and bhishma had put upon it but with my grace i was protecting you and now that the work is over the rath the rath can go into flames now arjuna is a chosen one he is given that special protection but for that one has to do much one has to surrender much one has to take the whole life as nothing else but a means to serve the divine arjuna obeyed shri krishna implicitly even at the war when he is getting impulses towards sanyasa at the end he says shishyasti ham sadhimam you tell me should i shoot or not shoot he says shoot fine of course he says it after eating chapters and says it so beautifully he says i have told you what i have to say now you do what you decide to do <laughs> only the divine can give this freedom of choice i have told you what i have to say after 18 chapters of such deep spiritual practice now you do what you choose to do in your freedom and arjuna says no question i have surrendered and here i go so this should be our state but it's not easy because there is resistance in human nature and this resistance takes many forms it's unconscious the inertia of the physical these things are very nice very good very beautiful very high sounding after going home one wants samosa and chai then one slumps in that couch and the fingers yesterday the homo sapiens sign is that the thumb is <laughs> changed it can rotate it starts and then it goes on then suddenly one remembers oh, i am supposed to meditate acha kal karenge tomorrow and that tomorrow and then yet tomorrow so one has to catch that inertia by the very tail and say out you go even if one doesn't feel like sitting to sit by abhyas by practice it comes so inertia comes nothing else just the physical refuses 
The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Or the vital will come. Oh my God, I have to do all this. What does it mean? I have to leave all my joys, <laughs> thrills. Actually one doesn't have to, it will just go away. One doesn't have to keep struggling with hundred things. But some things, yes. The band of the spirit's enemies whose names are lust and anger and greed. So they have to go. But they will not go readily. They will come, attack again. So it's a battle. So one says, Chodo, it's a, you know, who is going to do this? But that means the round again and again. As we said, petty adventurers, repetition. Or the mind will come with all kinds of doubts. Maybe all this is hallucination. Some crazy people, what they talk about, God, divine, I have not seen. As if my seeing is everything. If that was the criteria, few months back I should have sent, said or few days back that Sydney doesn't exist. Because I have not seen it. I have yet not seen it. That's different. <laughs> but I mean that's absurd. That I have not seen therefore a thing doesn't exist. The most silliest argument that the mind gives. If I have not seen it doesn't exist. I am the criteria. My eyes. Basic science teaches us that our eyes see only a narrow spectrum. What it doesn't see is much, much more. What it doesn't hear is much, much more. And when we take to yoga, we begin to see and hear and touch and feel and sense and smell. Everything begins to change. The very senses get transmuted. So this is the fundamental state. So there are many resistances and it's not an easy thing. It's a tough battle. The mind will come with all kinds of doubts. We have that description that how difficult basically the path is on page 7. Basically, this difficulty is to remind oneself that we should be armed with fortitude, patience and perseverance. The mother says that if you cannot endure, that's why she would never encourage people to come to ashram who were running away from life. Life is very difficult, I want to be in ashram. So mother would say this is not a place for that. If you cannot handle the difficulties of life, how we are going to grapple with the much greater difficulty of the ego and the human nature? So first you grapple that. So on page 7 we have that on one side the divine wants, gives himself for human nature to change. But what happens? Page 7, hard is it to persuade earth nature's change. Mortality bears ill the eternal's touch because it shatters all the frames. The mother says about the story of a Japanese who suddenly had an experience of the infinite in the finite. It was given to him as a grace without preparation. And he suddenly said, oh my God, what has happened? I have gone stupid, I have gone stupid. He said, no, no, you have not gone stupid. Your mind is hushing to a bright omniscience. Now another kind of vision, experience, thoughts, ideas will begin to descend. He says, but I no more feel love for my country. I feel too vast. He says, yeah, naturally. Oh my God, oh my God, then I don't want this. I want to just experience things in a limited way. And he rejected the experience. It's because it shatters the frames. All the frames which we have built around life and are comfortable in it. All the belief systems, they get shattered. Or they enlarge and ennoble everything begins to assume a new significance but mortality bears in the eternal touch it fears the pure divine intolerance of that assault of ether and of fire 
it murmurs at its sorrowless happiness almost with hate repels the light it brings the story of christ christ came to give freedom what humanity of that time gave him bondage he came to give immortal life and what he received from humanity was death so this is how human nature reacts and we have the same thing in the story of rama krishna all these divine incarnations shobindo himself we know was put inside the prison and he had to leave and then he came all the way to pondicherry where he was chased for long long years thinking that he is probably still doing some armed rebellion against the britishers so this is how humanity treats in fact there is a nice little story that uh, the then governor of france early i think it's late 1900 or early 20s no it's late 1900 before the mother came permanently and um, because the britishers were out to catch him so they had asked the french people to go and find a way to first uh, you know make him move away from pondicherry because he is still within the you know close to the indian territory or to somehow find evidence incriminating evidence against him so the governor comes and offers him a place in alaska and he says you will have such a huge place and everything you can build and you don't have to after that worry about anything and all the disciples are very happy they think it's grace but shobindo remains quiet for a while and then he says i am not going to budge an inch from here because he has come here by divine command so he doesn't want to budge an inch and then after speaking to him the governor goes and say i can't believe what you people are saying a man he is such an erudite in every possible language he was impressed by his french by his knowledge of latin english literature philosophies he says he is a sage a seer he could see only that much because speaking to him he realized it but look at the humanity around at that point of time it trembles at its naked power of truth and the might and sweetness of its absolute voice inflicting on the heights the abysm's law it sallies with its mire heaven's messengers its thorns of fallen nature are the defense it turns against the savior hands of grace it meets the sons of god with death and pain and after that they build a temple a mosque and a church over him their sun thoughts fading darkened by ignorant minds their work betrayed their good to evil turned the cross their payment for the crown they gave only they leave behind a splendid name this is the way humanity treats the avatars they come to give us something much vaster and we have all these clouds we throw upon the avatar and instead of benefiting from that presence i mean when we read mother's writings amazing regardless of whatever field one is working regardless of any path one is following shobindo in the mother's writing help us they don't tell us you leave this path leave that path they open doors for everyone and yet very often these works remain 
sanctifying the library hardly people read such a loss we read so many things and when we begin to read it's like a fire i remember when i started maybe 25 26 maybe earlier started reading the mother's writing and i just couldn't leave and i wondered what a treasure house why nobody told me i had read the puranas the vedas the upanishads so gita and almost every possible uh, saint sage western philosophy and i said how come i miss this and it's so so illuminating and that was so so boring so abstruse i mean after reading shankaracharya and bhashyas life divine appears simple i, I can tell you assure you by experience and then i would sit in the toilet and see read i would travel in the bus and read because i just couldn't put down hey, what is this that i have been missing and it was my post graduate exams around the corner so my wife got a little worried that look it's fine but you are not here to become a saint <laughs> you you better prepare for your exams i say i just can't read it's so so beautiful how can i read after this those boring medical textbooks so how grace works just this is a little bit of personal experience just to share how it can work my in-laws got worried they thought this fellow will take to sanyas it took me time to tell them no no this is not that path don't worry everything is okay i am well in control of myself and <laughs> this is through life then the night before my exams i fell sick with very high fever not the night before the day before and during that fever i was reading essays on the gita and i kept it on the side and i had a beautiful experience of coming out with sri arbindo and seeing um, lovely some 16 lines of poem uh, came down into my head with me as a woman and the lord as a man it was a wonderful experience but i couldn't capture those lines which i still sometimes feel uh, sad about and in that state very blissfully next day i have gone for the exams i really don't remember what i have written all that i remember is that i was given ampicillin <laughs> so and i went into the exams very happily joyously jo hoga hoga and in the whole um, so many competitors i had a merit uh, in the first four uh, and i could choose any subject it was simply an act of grace that everything came what probably i knew this is my impression but it's like a fire it catches you you can't just put down because it's something so so tremendous for any of us i always advise read mother's writings yes life divine is difficult savitri is difficult but mother's writing like a little child she takes us and they are given for all of us it's a gift of humanity it doesn't matter she doesn't say you have to be in this religion or that religion or no religion to an atheist it communicates things to anyone wanting to live life a better way it communicates things at one place the mother says to be a good wife is as difficult as being a yogi to be a teacher you have to be a yogi and she gives the principles of teaching she teaches how to find the soul in the most secular way we don't have to believe this or that religion to find the soul because it is frankly god doesn't care about the religion he cares about that little thing deep inside our heart so this is the response so savitri shows the way this is a whole book in savitri the book of yoga where the path is shown step by step and as we move into the path we meet two kinds of possibility there are the three purushas they are known in indian thought 
I'm deliberately avoiding these abstruse metaphysical terms. But basically what it means is that when we go inside, we can take a station either in the mental consciousness or the vital or the physical and mistake them to be the authentic touch of the soul. When we take our station in the physical consciousness, we begin to believe that by serving human beings and taking care of them, feeding the poor, nurturing the sick, I am actually doing a work for God and it is what my soul is telling me. By entering into the sticking station in the vital consciousness, seat of vital consciousness, the vital purusha, we believe that by, for, by fighting for light, for truth, for justice, we have found the soul. By taking a seat in the mental consciousness, we believe that by adopting a belief system, by reading and philosophizing and intellectualizing, I have found my soul. But we have to leave all these aside and go further deep. And each of these levels have their own difficulties. To find a seat in the mind, first step, we have to grapple with doubts. Doubts, doubts. I know it. The human mind says, I know it. I don't need to surrender it to know a greater truth. I can analyze God. After all, I have analyzed the caterpillar. I have analyzed the sky. I have dug the oceans. I know all about everything. Why can't I know God? This is what the mind says. The vital. I am a battler. Why should I battle for good and truth? I am the higher of the forces of the earth. I need to enjoy, lead a comfortable life. Similarly, the physical, it adopts its own philosophy that God is meant to give us suffering, suffering and pain. It is the reward side. The soul, when it takes its poise in the physical, believes it is there to relieve suffering and pain. But when in the ego self, it changes into God is meant to give me suffering and pain. I should take suffering and pain. Some people even inflict willful suffering. These are halfway homes. We have to go still deeper, deeper, deeper. Regardless of everything that is happening outside, the Bosnia and Somalia and India and everything else, and not rest till we find it. And I'll close with a few lines, what happens when we find it. But this is the first step. There are other steps on the path which open when we find it. The finding of the soul is very, very powerfully described that how this touches each center and we have the Kundalini awakening from below upward in traditional Kundalini Yoga. But here it opens from above downwards. It opens the doors to grace. That's the beauty of the soul. The doors to grace are shut, doubts, defects, vital egoism, all these shut the doors to grace. But the first thing soul does, it's like a magic key. So it opens the doors. It goes into the mind, opens the door. Goes into the heart, opens the door. Goes into the will, opens the door. Into the very body, opens the door. And what we experience, I'll close with that few lines. <coughs> It's a very powerful, you know, description of the mighty mother with whom one identifies. I'll just read a little bit of that description because it's very powerful and then go on to the change. It's on page 528, 529. 
as if on concentration's marble seat. In its deep lotus home, her being sat as if on concentration's marble seat. Look the lines, how we have to be concentrated. Calling the mighty mother of the worlds to make this earthly tenement her house, to call her inside. Ma, 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 mother, mother, doesn't matter in what name, by what language. She knows all languages. Once in Orissa, I was talking to a group of little children. So one child asked me, these children were six to eight year old, that, sir, tell me, they couldn't speak English properly, but look at how wisdom is absolutely irrespective of whatever external things are. So one child asked, asked me, sir, tell me, what language does God understand? So the other child says, I can answer, I can answer. Actually, I asked them, any of you can answer? Because that was the mode I had operated that they will come out with their own insights. So now they say, I, I can answer, I can answer. I said, yes, what? She says, I know for sure that the mother definitely understands Odia. <laughs> I said, how do you say that? She says, every time I pray in Odia, she answers me. So the third child says, she understands all languages, Baba. Whatever language you say, she will listen. So to call her in whatever language, whatever way, that becomes the mantra. To call her to occupy this house. Of course, the touch can blow the fuse. So some basic preparation is necessary. As in a flash from a supernal light, a living image of the original power. All others are delegate powers. A face, a form came down into her heart and made of it its temple and pure abode. Imagine when this becomes a temple. We don't have to go to hundred places. This becomes the temple. But when its feet had touched the quivering bloom, a mighty movement rocked the inner space as if a world were shaken and found its soul. It's not easy. Many persons, they suddenly experience fear because that little individuality which we think is too much suddenly gets shattered. Out of the inconscience, soulless, mindless night, a flaming serpent rose, released from sleep. It rose billowing its coils and stood erect and climbing mightily, stormily on its way. It touched her centers with its flaming mouth as if a fiery kiss had broken their sleep. This is the story we read in many of the uh, fables and parables that there is a princess who is sleeping and she is waiting for the prince who perfectly loves her. We had this movie Shrek, Shrek 1 at least. Very interesting, a very mystic movie. No wonder it did well. Cartoon film, but really, I have not seen Shrek 2. Shrek 1 was really, really brilliantly made. And many such fables where the princess is sleeping and waiting for the prince who must battle against all kinds of odds, eventually come. And when he kisses her, she wakes up. That is the original force, the power of the soul. And that self, the prince, it must battle through everything and eventually come. So here that description, of course, this is a pure mystic description. Then they bloomed and laughed 
surcharged with light and bliss then at the crown it joined the eternal space in the flower of the head in the flower of matter's base the muladhar and sahasrar in each divine stronghold and nature not it held together the mystic stream which joins the viewless summits with the unseen depths an image sat of the original power wherein the mighty mother's form and face see we go to temples in india there is a tradition to worship mother durga and as i was sharing yesterday that we don't worship we worship her for one moment and then we invest all energies into mahisasur because right next to durga are all the stalls which are dedicated to mahisasur and poor durga either has to suffer it silently or if she really wakes up god knows what will happen probably when she wakes up like shiva recently in kedarnath then there is a rudra bhav and people say oh they were pilgrims why they died who knows what what was going on inside when shiva wakes in that mood or when kali wakes up she doesn't care so the original power armed bearer of the weapon and the sign whose occult might no magic can imitate manifold yet one she sat a guardian force a savior gesture stressed lifted arm and symbol of some native cosmic strength a sacred beast lay brown below her feet a silent flame-eyed mass of living force all underwent a high celestial change so there is a change which happens inside yoga is about a change of consciousness it's not about experiences experiences which don't change us make no sense they must change us what is the change that takes place powers and divinities burst flaming forth each part of the being trembling with delight so powers and divinities which i sleep we read sometime back the sleeping gods they wake up and then what happens to each part in the country of the lotus of the head which thinking mind has made its busy space in the castle of the lotus twixt the brows whence it shoots the arrows of its sight and will a glad uplift and a new working came the immortals thoughts displaced our bounded view the immortals thoughts arts drab idea and sense suddenly our thought stretches into infinity if for nothing else just for the fact that shurbindo wrote now what is printed into going to be printed into 35 volumes each volume about 500 pages and if we come to think of it that most of it he wrote in just a span of a little less than 6 years is enough to probably <laughs> salute that this is not a human phenomena to say the least it is a divine phenomena and how he would sit sometimes he would be answering queries from night 10 o'clock till morning 6 in that kerosene lamp savitri 200 lines we are reading it and people find it difficult 200 lines at times descending like this and flowing like a mighty ganges through the matted locks of shiva what is this phenomena immortal thoughts how they were coming the whole thoughts which gave a new idea and sense to earth 
each shape showed its occult design unveiled god's meaning in it for which it was made the immortals will took into its calm control our blind or erring government of life our government of life is like the indian government where the speaker is silent and everybody else speaks and when they speak there is ruckus so this is how we are it's a symbol inside there is utter indiscipline outside we are very disciplined well behaved mannerly people rub the ego a little and see so in pondicherry ashram when we go our ego gets rubbed why because <laughs> we are god has a sense of humor so he reminds us look that needs to change i remember once a retired colonel from the army who was very qualified also he had done law and all this he went to pondicherry for the first time very inspired and uh, basically his wife had turned and then he also you know actually accompanied her and he was sitting in the reception of the guest house where he started narrating narrating like you know old time colonels all about his days when in this war and that war you know army people have this uh, bad habit of you know becoming a hero and suddenly i mean they are doing heroic things but when you start recounting you know people can't always connect and suddenly <laughs> this man at the reception who was actually busy booking uh, he he was as if not even hearing and he said uh, all right this is your room absolutely nonchalantly so he says well uh, you know this room is here if i can get this that and he started you know he said no but no room is available there he says you know i have been a colonel in the army and i was recounting so he just got a little you know whatever that experience he had to get the our colonel in the story so he said this man says that there is how does it matter sir whether you are a colonel or not he started crying a man who had fought battles started crying he couldn't take that assault on the ego in the evening he tells me you know this is what they did to me i said sir you have to understand this is a divine magical place this is your first lesson so everything now onwards that you meet is a lesson for your growth but if you are here to fortify your ego this is not the place this is a place where you are here to get your ego rubbed off and the sooner it rubs off the better it is so normally there is a loose government of life inside outside we are very good people very decent very well behaved mannerly but inside we are full of desires hungers all kinds of things and slowly there is a whole process of catharsis the mother brings them to our view throws them out and clears the space our blind or erring government of life a loose republic once of wants and needs then bowed to the uncertain sovereign mind life now obeyed to a diviner rule and every act became an act of god how beautiful every act not just meditation not just speaking about things or writing philosophical things every act became an act of god i am reminded of kabir he says so beautifully even shri krishna in the gita he says yukt ahar viharasya everything should be done in a state of yoga the food we eat and even entertainment relaxation should be done in a state of yoga and kabir what does he say he says jo bolu so ved kahawa jahan pag dharu so tirath says what is veda whatever i speak is veda because it's inspired by that light which shone in the vedas 
Where is Tirat? Wherever I place my foot is Tirat. Why? Because there is the sacred presence of the indwelling divine. So here it is that every act became an act of God. In the kingdom of the lotus of the heart, love chanting its pure heminal hymn made life and body mirrors of sacred joy. And all the emotions gave themselves to God. All the emotions, all the seekings of the heart, all the various relationships, that's what is contained in the prayer, Tameva Mata Chapita Tameva. Shubhindu says in one of his aphorisms, discipleship to God the Master, sonship to God the Father, the clasp of the hand of the friend and the playmate, slave to the divine as Master, discipleship to God the Teacher, and the love, the rapturous love of the divine, the paramour. How the paramour? Because all these loves that we love is actually only a shadow. The real love is of God. So he is the divine, the paramour. He becomes the paramour. Shurita <laughs> at one place in his aphorism with this characteristic humor, at once striking a blow at the kind of hypocrite morality in which we live, at the same time showing a deeper truth. He says, to commit adultery with God, this world was perfectly created. <laughs> you just cannot be happy and satisfied with it. So to commit adultery with God. And at the same time he strikes at the root of what human beings conceive as a very, very good thing. So all emotions give themselves to God. He becomes the friend, the playmate, the father, the mother, indulgent love of divine, the mother. Shubhinda says the divine wants that we love him as a mother and ask her things. She loves to pour her heart and indulge with the child. So when we treat the divine as mother, in Indian yoga, divine is also treated as a child in Pushtimarg, in the Vaishnava sect. So there you are not supposed to ask anything. You have to do everything for the child. It's a very, very difficult path. All emotions gave themselves to God. In the naval lotus, broad imperial range, its proud ambitions and its master lusts were tamed into instruments of a great calm sway to do a work of God on earthly soil. All this will is turned towards what? Towards simply self-preservation and self-engrandizement. Thanks to Darwin and all the teachers who taught Darwin. What an absurd thing to use this will only for this but it can turn into a means to do a work of God. So when this part undergoes a change, then slowly there is a catharsis of all these desires running towards this and that object and all these desires get gathered into one single mass of will and force to do God's work. In the narrow nether center's petty parts, its childish game of daily dwarf desires was changed into a sweet and boisterous play a romp of little gods with life in time. In the deep place where once the serpent slept, there came a grip on matter's giant powers for large utilities in life's little space. Even on matter's power. Sri one one of so many such stories, I mean stories means actual events, even now there are people as living testimonies to that. And how in Pondicherry cyclone used to come. So these cyclones were so terrible that they would 
people would fly away. So, you know, it was really terrible. So, once when such a cyclone comes and the mother goes into Shivindu's room to see if the windows are closed because, you know, it may be in early days. And she sees Shirobindo that all the windows are open. Shirobindo is sitting on the desk and writing. There is such a tremendous peace and not a drop of air uh, or that water or that gale is entering inside. Even now we can feel that atmosphere in Shirobindo's room. What a blessed thing. Even when the tsunami came, five kilometers this side and that side, nothing happened. In fact, something happened. People felt it's an amusement. I was there on that day. And many of us rushed out hearing the sea has come. Where did it come? It came only up to the that beach front a little bit. So we all went to sea with excitement. Ah, something new has happened. We really felt like that. They're like a little high tide. And then I had to go for picnic. Picnic means some ashram inmates had arranged um, and some outside devotees in one of the lakes, ashram lakes. So we went there. So at 2 o'clock, now this happens at around 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock I start getting messages. How are you? Are you okay? I thought, what's gone wrong? <laughs> okay, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm supposed to ask people, are you okay? But why are people asking me, am I okay? <laughs> I'm normal. <laughs> so then one of my friends sends me a message. I am rushing off to Andaman. I said, great. Have a nice time. I had no clue. None of us had a clue. We were just enjoying. We get home and we are tired. So over a cup of tea, switch on the TV. And we see devastation all around Pondicherry. That's where it struck us. What a hand of grace. A collective aspiration can create a zone, so powerful zone, that even forces of nature, material nature, are compelled to bend their path. To change tracks. It's there in mother's prayer also. She had this occult experience when she was going on the ship. And uh, the whole ship went through a severe turbulence because of severe storm. And uh, Theon was accompanying her from Paris to Algeria. Asked to do something about it. And she went into her room, came out of her body. Goes down and sees little entities which are creating turbulence. And she tells them. Don't do this. Why are you doing this? People are afraid. Look, she is capable of finishing them, but she doesn't do that. And after half an hour, they become quiet and they go away. And then the storm abates. And she, so behind every physical phenomena, there are powers and forces. We don't know how to control them because we think we are helpless and we have to rely on purely material means. Accident, so many things. There are forces and this whole force, they are all described in Savitri and Great Length and in Mother and Shobindu's writings. And by awakening in the soul, by conquering the little space of matter within us, we can extend the control over material forces outside us. This is how the Vedic Rishis did things. And yet, at the end, after all this conquest, this awakening of the centers, this opening to the doors of grace, the stepping out of the soul into the front, it's only one great step. There is much more in the path of this yoga. Lot more change which is yet to come. One man's perfection still can save the world. There is one in new proximity to the skies, a first betrothal of the earth to heaven. This is only a first meeting. A deep concordant 
between truth and life a camp of god is pitched in human time when we have discovered our soul and these centers open and through them our very being nature begins to change there is one first betrothal a camp of god is pitched in human time this is the temple we have to build this is the gurudwara this is the mosque this is the church what we see outside is a symbol at best and a caricature at worst so we'll stop here we'll take a break and then we come back after 20 minutes for some questions <laughs>